Hello, and welcome to the Endocrine News Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Lohr, and we've got a very special episode today with a couple of firsts. It's our first episode with a patient joining the conversation, which I love and hope to do more often. I also have my first return guest, Dr. Maria Flasheriu, who is just fantastic. And also exciting, we're offering our first prize. So if you're listening to a podcast about acromegaly, odds are you have some interest in the pituitary. Wouldn't you love to have a very fancy pituitary pin to accent your wardrobe, computer bag, or whatever? All you have to do is go to our site and tell us what you think of this episode, and we'll get that pin to you. So go to endocrine.org slash podcast to get that pin. Now, before we get started, I'd like to thank Pfizer for supporting this episode through an unrestricted educational grant. Now on with the show. This is the Endocrine News Podcast. As I said, I'm joined today by Dr. Maria Flasheriu, Professor of Medicine and Neurological Surgery and Director of the Pituitary Center at Oregon Health and Science University. She is also the President of the Pituitary Society. It is so good to have you back on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. And also with us, our first patient on the program, Mr. Marvin Avila. Thanks so much for being with us today, Marvin. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate this. So today we're talking about all things acromegaly. How is it diagnosed? How is it treated? And what is it like living with acromegaly? But first, Dr. Flasheriu, can you tell us what acromegaly is and what causes it? Acromegaly means enlargement of the hands and feet. It comes from Greek. And the term itself was actually coined by French people uh, in 19th century. It's caused by a tumor on the pituitary gland in the large majority of cases between 95 and 98%. What happens with that growth hormone that's coming from the pituitary tumor goes everywhere in the body and it has effects pretty much everywhere, including on the extremities, on the face, that's where the name came from, but also on several very important organs. What are some of the complications associated with acromegaly? We used to think that once we fix the acromegaly, everything is going to go away. Mm. Right now, through studies in the last probably decades, we have found more and more complications. Some are good news because we can fix them easier, and some are complications that we have never thought. So how I explain to the patients and I think about are complications related to cardiovascular system, hypertension, excess gross hormone-induced hypertension, diabetes and increasing insulin resistance, respiratory complications. Patients with acromegaly have obstructive sleep apnea, but a third of them have central sleep apnea, so a lot of them need CPAP for treatment, for example. There are changes in quality of life that sometimes persist, severe joint pain and changes with osteoarthritis, And more recently, we found that patients with acromegaly have actually increased risk of vertebral fracture. We used to think that the gross hormone is building bone, looks like it's not really building good bone. The good news is that over the years, with treating the acromegaly properly, the mortality is decreasing over time to the normal population. If we can control the gross hormone, then definitely we can control some of the complications too. 
some of the joints are more irreversible, but the main thing would be once we have a diagnosis to treat very quickly and furthermore to make an effort to make the diagnosis much earlier. This would be very important. Right now, patients have mortality due to cancer. Doesn't seem it's significantly increased compared to the general population. So that's actually good news. The patients don't have so much cardiovascular disease as before. So they just go back to normal population. Mm. Marvin, when were you diagnosed with acromegaly? I think I was diagnosed in 2018. When they took the tumor out and they noticed that my levels weren't right. Can you tell us a little bit what it's like living with acromegaly? Scary, because you gotta be careful in many ways. You have to eat, you gotta be careful. Why do you have to be careful when you eat? I don't know. I just feel like I got fatter more the more I eat, and I think that has to be part of that. I was like two twenty, and now I'm like two fifty something. So from two twenty to two fifty. And I'm not supposed to eat like rice, bread. There are several issues related to the metabolism in relation with growth hormone. So, for example, if the patients have very high growth hormone before surgery and the surgery is normalizing the growth hormone, then due to this abrupt decrease in GH, though it goes to normal, notice abnormal weight gain in some patients. Furthermore, the patients with growth hormone excess have a resistance and several of them have diabetes. Now, with surgery and decreasing growth hormone, depends on the duration of the disease, you can see improvement in glucose, but about 30% of patients actually see worsening of glucose metabolism and sometimes new onset diabetes. Some medications are better than others, but even after surgery, we can see that the, the diabetes can worse in some patients. Marvin, when you think about the treatment that you need to receive for acromegaly, is, is the treatment in itself sometimes a bit of a challenge? Every month I get injection. I have to go from Maryland to D.C. get injection every month, and I get it every single day. That's another injection. So every month there's one injection, and then every day yeah. there's a different, another one. different one. For my high blood pressure, I get another one too. I drink that every single day in the morning. And do you know if your high blood pressure is linked to your acromegaly? They say it's part of it. you got to be careful. That's why I'm on strict diet for it. Dr. Flasheri, what are the signs and the symptoms of acromegaly? And then how does a doctor go about making a diagnosis? So we have signs and symptoms for advanced acromegaly. When the acromegaly is probably for 10 to 11 years, this is still the mean delay of diagnosis in U.S., then we can make the diagnosis very easily. The patients have enlargement of uh, hands. They tell us that they had to change rings several times for years. They have enlargement of their feet. They change shoes. The gloves that don't fit. They need new hats. They see the orthodontist multiple times. I had patients that had lip surgery to decrease the size of their lip without anybody even thinking of acromegaly, for example. And then it's a corollary of other symptoms. Patients have hypertension and diabetes, but it's hard to say because there are a lot of patients that have hypertension and diabetes Without having acromegaly, patients with acromegaly have sleep apnea. Sometimes it's severe. They have headaches, joint pain, sweating. So these are all symptoms that if we put them in context, how I'm teaching the medical students, if you have a patient that's younger 
that doesn't have to have hypertension or doesn't have to have diabetes. If something doesn't make sense, if the patient presents with uh, sleep apnea, that it's not obese and no other specific reasons to it, and the patient also has headache and some sweating, just think about it. So this is probably the key for rare disease. We can't, and we tried to check an IGF-1, that's the screening for the disease in large population. It doesn't work like this mm. because then there are a lot of false positives. The essays have issues for IGF-1. It's the stress on the patients, the cost to the healthcare system. However, the opposite is true. Missing the diagnosis for a long time, we didn't talk about it, but this is a tumor. If the tumor is large and in more than 50% of patients, we're talking about macroadenomas. So the tumors are so large that the surgeon, can, even the best surgeon, uh, the best pituitary surgeon, cannot take all the tumor out. If the tumor is in the cavernous sinus, uh, with the endoscope, it's better probably, we don't know for sure, than the microscope. An experienced surgeon is clearly better than a regular neurosurgeon. However, the remission rate is still 70%. So these are the patients that, if they have large tumor, they will require medication after surgery. And as we heard from Marvin, the medication itself, uh, it's complicated there quality of life. They have to travel for the injection. Mm -hmm. They are on a chronic medication. So I think that if we can do it, though I'm not sure how to do it yet, besides teaching everybody and increasing awareness, if you think about it, check for it. If something doesn't make sense and the patient has more than one or two symptoms, but let's not wait for enlargement of the hands and feet because that's usually too late. So it sounds like a, a big key to the treatment is an early diagnosis. And we're talking about raising awareness among those who are doing the, the checkups to look for specific things that by their own, on their own, might not say acromegaly, but together in clusters of symptoms might really be saying acromegaly. At that point, when you say they should check it out, is it an x-ray at that point to look for a tumor? Or what? where do we go from there when they start to suspect it, but they want to get more of a confirmation? That's a very good point. Generally, don't recommend to do any type of imaging because that's complicating the picture even more. If you do mm. imaging, right now with the new MRIs, probably one in five people have some abnormality on the pituitary. The MRIs are so mm. good that we'll see it's not a, a pituitary tumor per se, but it's defined as an abnormality. We call it pituitary incidentaloma, and then it's stressing even more both the, the providers and the patients. So what we recommend and what we have done in our center and in many other centers, we have discussed with all the other specialists that are seeing this patient. So for example, rheumatologist that sees a patient with severe joint pain, if that patient doesn't have all the antibodies or a specific rheumatologic disorders, they're checking an IGF-1. If somebody goes to the sleep apnea clinic and they have sleep apnea, but they don't really fit the criteria that they should have risk factors for it. Mm -hmm. They check an IGF-1, and if it's high, even if it's falsely high, then they send the patient to us. We also uh, see a lot of patients from uh, neurologists. They do imaging, and they find the tumor. But also, separately from checking in everybody with a pituitary tumor on IGF-1, if they have severe headaches and some other features, including with sweating, they usually screen for it or they call us for it. But, of course, the dentist 
this is a little bit more complicated because they don't have clinics with us, but we went around and uh, tried to discuss with all the orthodontists if they see something. Pleased to say that uh, I have gotten several referrals now from orthodontists and few patients were from physicians that have seen patients before and they did not think about acromegaly until later. So once we discussed with them, they thought about it much, much quicker. So this is why we should try and raise awareness. We're finding more cases now, as I said earlier, because we recommend checking an IGF-1. This is the marker of the growth hormone secretion overall in every patient that has a pituitary tumor. Some patients have pituitary tumors and they don't have all the symptoms until much later. And now we also know that patients that have been told that they have a prolactinoma, 30% of these patients actually have mixed growth hormone secretion with prolactin. So we are finding more and more cases and hopefully finding them earlier and improving outcomes. Marvin, before the recording, we talked a little bit about how your acromegaly was was found (laughs) and what steps sort of led to that. Could you share with our listeners how you started your journey to discovering that you might and do have acromegaly? I guess I was lucky that they got that thing on time. That's one of the things doctor told me. It happened like just a simple regular x-ray in my head for my dentals. And they saw that, uh, you know, I had something weird inside my head. I was really big. And uh, they recommended me to the doctors in D.C. And uh, they told me one thing. You're very lucky because that thing, not many people didn't see it. That's how I know that uh, I had a tumor. And then when they took the tumor out, they saw a lot of changing on me. Like, I even lost my vision for a little bit. And I even lost weight, too. I was 270-something. And went down completely, like 220. I didn't expect that surgery would change the way I think there. I used to think different. I used to be angry. Oh, no, I'm not even angry anymore. <laughs> like I said, I was lucky. And I'm still trying to find something I can get well with that on. But you got to have faith. You got to just follow the strict diet, which is hard because there's a lot of good food out there. You cannot just eat. I know that. So it can change your life completely. So I think that your story further emphasizes a point that you were making earlier, that we just need to be on the lookout. Because it sounds like your journey started just from going to an orthodontist or uh, getting dental care. And you mentioned before the podcast recording that there was, they noticed your underbite and they're asking you some questions about it. And that led to the x-ray, which you just talked about. And so it was good that they were looking when they saw the image. They knew to take it to the next level, I suppose, as it were. That's how they found out my tumor. Dr. Flasher, can you walk us through how acromegaly is treated and how treatment has evolved in recent years? We talked about screening. So when I mentioned the IGF-1, insulin growth factor 1, this is the screening for acromegaly. Okay. To make a correct diagnosis, if the IGF-1 is very high, and the patient has a pituitary tumor, then we know it's acromegaly. But otherwise, a lot of patients, especially right now, that we try to find them a little bit earlier when they have minimal symptoms, we're doing growth hormone suppression test. So what we do, we use glucose. It's the same test that we use for diabetes, and we kill two birds with it. We try to diagnose diabetes, and we check at growth hormone every time we're checking the glucose. 
And if the glucose is not able to suppress the cross-hormone to values that depends on the assays, usually it's less than one for the Endocrine Society guidelines for acromegaly, then we can make a clear-cut diagnosis of acromegaly. Furthermore, we're using this test and the IGF-1 to determine if the patient are in remission after surgery. Mm. Now we can move to treatment. So the main treatment for acromegaly, especially in U.S., is surgery. There are some countries, especially in Europe, that they are using or preoperative medical treatment or medical treatment instead of surgery, uh, especially for the large tumor to try to shrink them. But in U.S., surgery is the main treatment. Of course, if the patient has contraindication, that would be a different story. The reason we need to do surgery is, yes, the gross hormone has to come down. Even if we know it's not going to be normal, if the patient has a large tumor, even if they don't have visual loss, the patient will need surgery to decrease the tumor size. Furthermore, taking most of the tumor out, even if you know the patient is not going to be in remission, will improve the effect of the medication. So the hopefully the medication will be less or increase interval or lower doses. So surgery is first. And then we wait usually six weeks and sometimes even more. And then check another IGF-1, but it has to be at least six weeks. And then we also do glucose tests to suppress the gross hormone. If these are not normal, then we know that a patient will need medical therapy. Now, in function of, and this is also an advancement that right now are capable based on the type of pathology that the tumor is out during surgery, to try to figure out which medication might be better for the patient. We're not there yet. However, we know that if one is not working, and we know in advance that the likelihood is not to work very well, then we change much quicker. So this is really moving towards an individualized treatment for the patients. We have several groups of medications. We have medications that act at the pituitary level, and they are called somatostatin receptor ligand, and we have octreotide, lanreotide, and tessireotide. And then we have a medication called bagisomant that's a gross hormone receptor blocker. So it doesn't act at the tumor level, but it's blocking the receptor for gross hormone thus decreasing all the effects. The IGF-1 would be normal in large majority of cases. And then we are using sometimes medications that are off-label, cabervalin that we use for prolactinomas, can be used for acromegaly if the IGF-1 is just a tiny bit over the normal, otherwise it doesn't work. And then we're using, in a lot of patients, combination therapy. We know that one drug might not be enough, and we don't want to use higher doses because the adverse effects are sometimes, and even the costs are sometimes related to the dose. So we're using the somatostatin receptor ligands in combination with a gross hormone receptor blocker, and thus we're achieving the perfect outcome. The IGF-1 is normal, the tumor doesn't grow, and usually the patient is feeling much better. For patients that have very large tumor that are not responding to medication, sometimes we have to use radiation. In my opinion, should be a third line. In um, endocrine society guidelines, radiation is a third line. But there are tumors that keep growing despite everything. So even in patients that are younger, we have to use radiation. The reason we're not using it much earlier is 
radiation will control the growth hormone. Takes years. But in between, the patient will also develop hypopituitary. So we're changing one disease with the other disease, mm-hmm. and then the patients will need to be on, on many hormonal replacement that we're getting better with that too, but not perfect. From the patient's point of view, how long into their life will they need to receive treatment for acromegaly? Because some of these sound like they could be for a very you are correct, and we're trying to think that we're finding better therapies at some point. For example, for prolactinomas, we can stop the medication in some patients because the tumors are shrinking. For now, for acromegaly, if the patient does not respond to surgery, so if the tumor is large, that goes back to my point initially, mm-hmm. if we find the disease earlier, then the surgery will be almost curative. You heard me. I have not used the word cure and I use the word remission because the tumors are larger and the disease can come back. So medication, unless the patient has radiation and even that, sometimes this is not enough, at least for now, is probably for the duration of the life of the patient. We're getting better with uh, therapies. We have several options in the future, so hopefully at at some point, or even the radiation, it might improve so much that we can just decrease the growth hormone without affecting all the other pituitary cells, because I don't want to induce adrenal insufficiency in a patient unless the tumor is growing, so that's why it's it's third line. So hopefully some radiation can be more targeted, or we can have medication that just dissolves the tumor at some point, but this is wishful thinking. If the growth hormone excess comes at a younger age, when the epiphyses are not closed, then the patient will not develop all the enlargement of the hands and feet and the jaw initially. They will just continue to grow. Later in life, when the epiphyses are closed, the growth hormone is just going to enlarge whatever. So that's why you see enlargement of the extremities and in the same time enlargement of the heart, the enlargement of the liver, destruction of the cartilages because everything is growing. What might the future hold that might make diagnosis and treatment of acromegaly even better than what we have today? I can tell you that we have advances in treatment. So we did several studies with an oral optiotide, for example. It's the medication that the somatostatin receptor lichen, but in an oral form. It's not approved, but if it would be approved, it would be a change for some patients. Not everybody will want to switch from injections that once a month to oral medication, but some would prefer, especially for combination therapies that need the injections separately. There are also some other oral medications in phase two trials. And one of them could potentially be more powerful than the uh, somatostatin receptor lichens available right now. It's an injection, another type of drug that's also blocking the receptor, but through an antisense mechanism that's also in phase two trials, that it's an injection that's once a month versus uh, every day. So we see some advances. I have to say that for diagnosis, I don't think we're moving too much. Recent studies, including our data, patients have a lot of complications and larger tumors are diagnosed. So that one, we didn't move significantly. We made some progress compared with the time from uh, Andre the Giant, but we're Mm -hmm. not where we want to be. 
I think the most advances we had are medical treatment. Keep in mind that we had no medication until 30 years ago, so this is a huge advancement. We can treat sometimes even before surgery for patients that couldn't have surgery. We can shrink the tumor. With the advancement of pegvisomin that's blocking the growth hormone receptor, we can control the large majority of patients, even if they are have more aggressive tumors, in combination therapy with the right dose. And sometimes the patients will tell you that you have to increase the dose again. And we say, yes, we have to increase the dose again because we want the IGF-1 to be perfect. And I explain to them why. Because all the complications and the mortality data is linked to how normal is the IGF-1. So there are some issues with the medication and increasing the doses, including costs, but we have something at the end of the tunnel. We know that the mortality decreased to normal population if we can control the IGF-1. The large majority of complications, these patients with acromegaly had cardiovascular mortality that was more than double, and mm. now it's reversing to normal. So we're doing something, but clearly not enough. I mean, That's actually, why, Giant yeah. wasn't that long ago. No. We wrote a recent review last year with an international group for, for endocrine reviews looking at all the complications, and we're very pleased to see that even from the previous review that was 10 years before, several of the complications that there said that it increased the rate, now it's back to normal. Increase rate, yeah. back to normal. So we still have... Because the issue is we're finding new complications that we didn't know before, but I think we're moving in the right direction at least. Okay, so I want to say thank you so much to Dr. Flasheriu, and thank you also to Marvin for joining us today. This was a fascinating conversation. Uh, Thank you both for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. If you'd like to hear more of these, check us out on endocrine.org slash podcast or Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying these, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email at podcast at endocrine.org. Thanks again. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.